All right, welcome back to the Let's Talk About God podcast. We are on episode 11, and we've got something special for you today. Usually it's been me and Dad. Uh, Right now, Dad is actually in Louisiana preaching at a camp meeting, which is really exciting. So we've got something special for you today. We've got my old Old Testament professor when I was at Anderson University and my counselor who got me through college, Dr. Brian Criff. Welcome. Great to be with you guys. Yeah. Give us your official title. Give it to me. So I'm Associate Professor of Christian Studies at Anderson University, and I'm also the Associate Dean for Undergraduate Christian Studies, so I handle all the assessment, scheduling, Mm -hmm. and all the fun uh, stuff with with uh, with the Christian Studies undergraduate program. Wow, at that's Anderson fantastic. University. And I'm also uh, currently an interim pastor at Townville Baptist Church here in town as well. Wow, that's so, great. Now, how long have you been there? Uh, I have done three straight interims, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, this is the third one. I've done mm-hmm. uh, New Prospect Baptist Church and also Unity Baptist Church and Star. So wow. I've been since, uh, I guess, January. That's fantastic. Uh, at Townville. So that's great. Gr- great people there and uh, – it's it's a neat way to serve the Lord as churches go through that yeah. time of transition. Yeah, definitely. I know when I was there, like several of our professors would go and be in arms at other churches. Mm-hmm. So, well, it really does inform you know what we do in the classroom to mm-hmm. have that practical experience and to be uh, to see the theology and the practical come together. So, yeah. we we, uh, we appreciate those opportunities and and it's a great opportunity again to serve the community and serve the local churches. Yeah, definitely. I, I would say one of like the biggest complaints I hear from people about college is that professors don't know anything. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've heard it. Those who can't do teach, right? Sure, yeah. Never had that problem at AU. All yeah. of our professors were you know, involved in ministry, had been pastors before, and had mm-hmm. plenty of stories and uh, real-life experience to help us out. So sure. shout yeah. out to AU, my alma mater. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, look, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it today. We've got a really interesting topic today. We, I, I framed the question like this. Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? Now, that might sound funny because you're saying, of course, he is the same. But what I mean is practically. Um, oftentimes, we view the Old Testament God um, I'll, I'll, I'll put him like that as egotistic or he's judgmental and he's all about wrath and anger and violence and all of this crazy stuff. And then the New Testament God being Jesus is all about hugs and butterflies and love. And we just love that Jesus, but we're not so sure about the New Testament God. But I think we have to ask the question, are they the same? And the answer is yes. But if so, how do we reconcile some of the things we see in the Old Testament with the things that we see in the New Testament? Um, And at first glance, this can be really, really difficult for us. Um, But I think they are reconcilable, um, and it's important to see God throughout the entire narrative of Scripture as the same God working out the same plan. Mm -hmm. And I think if we take a deeper look, we'll even see that um, Jesus himself carries over a little bit of the wrath and the judgment um, uh, that we see in the Old Testament, and it's important to to not forget that as well. Sure. Um, so let's go ahead and let's just dive right into it. Um, let's look at the Mosaic Law. So this is the law that um, we're most f- familiar with, found you know primarily in the first five books of the Bible, things we see in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, this is the part of the Bible that you probably skip a lot. <laughs> um, but within this law, the Mosaic Law, um, there are some things that maybe um, – just kind of pop out to us and have us asking questions. But before we get that, 
talk to me about what is the Old Testament law, what is the Mosaic law, and what's its purpose? Sure. Well, actually, before we even get into that, let's let's back up to something you began the discussion with, okay. and that is this whole just the whole question about the God of the Old Testament versus mm-hmm. the God of the New Testament. I don't know if you remember all the way back in freshman year <laughs> when you were in my Old Testament class, yeah. we had. Uh, an information sheet that you filled out. And one of the things I always ask students at the beginning of the semester on that information sheet is that question, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? And Mm -hmm. you'd be surprised how many students who come into an Old Testament class will say, no, they're not. Uh, And a lot of that comes from the issues that you bring up. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that's a modern issue. This is something that people in the church have always struggled with. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of the earliest church heretics, a guy named Marcion, argued for the separation of the Old Testament from the new, from the from the canon itself, from just uh, tossing out the Old Testament as a whole and a good bit of the New Testament as well. And the reason was, of course, uh, a lot of what we see in the Old Testament concerning the law and concerning um, the the view of God that we find there. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what we need to to start out with is that affirmation that you that you made the point of making that this is the same God, right? Yeah. So um, we have, for instance, very clear statements. For instance, Malachi three six, which says that I am the Lord and I do not change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so God is going to be consistent in his character throughout the scriptures. And uh, he's not going to change his essential nature and character. Uh, so if we look at the nature of God as a God who is omnipotent, omniscient, a God who is omnibenevolent, in other words, he is all good, yeah. a God of wisdom, a God of justice, a God of faithfulness, a God of righteousness, he's going to be that God in, in Genesis, and he's going to be that God in Revelation. He's not going to change that essential nature, that essential character. Uh, that also goes to the issue of the Trinity, which you guys, I think, have done a first episode, uh, a, yeah, a podcast on, and uh, that is the same God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Now yeah. we do have what we call progressive revelation in the Scriptures that certain things about what we know about God, about theology, about uh, the Scriptures themselves, about certain issues like death and resurrection and these types of things, even the gospel, mm-hmm. become clear as we go through Scripture. So yeah. as you read through the Scriptures, um, later texts clarify earlier texts, but they never contradict earlier texts. So as we look through the Old Testament, some things that we look at might may not be as clear as what we find, for instance, in the New Testament, but it's mm-hmm. never going to contradict. Yeah. And if it does contradict, we've got a problem, right? Because yeah. then we have a problem not just with Scripture, but we also have a problem with God. And this is what a lot of atheists will try to bring up, um, and skeptics. But I, I think uh, it's it's good to ask these questions and to see uh, what we can say about the Scriptures. Now, if God is the same and is consistent – one of the things I like to do as I present a theology of, of God in just a basic Old Testament class or even in an Old Testament theology class is to actually look at the nature of God through specific lenses, through specific characteristics uh, in the Old Testament and compare that to what we find in the New Testament. Okay. And so I think that's a, a good way of looking at it to see if those things that are affirmed in the Old Testament are actually affirmed in the New. Do they match up? Yeah. Exactly. So, for instance, um, you know, we can look at the uh, – just start out with the, the issue of, of God's justice. Mm-hmm. 
Um, is God a God of justice in the Old Testament? Well, I think that's a that's that, an affirmation. That's clear, that, yeah, it's yeah, pretty clear. But what about the New Testament? Is God a God of justice in the New Testament? And uh, I think when you look at, for instance, the book of Revelation, you find much there that showed that God very much cares about uh, bringing forth justice in his creation. In fact, um, there's a longing in creation itself to have reconciliation. Absolutely. Uh, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans. And so uh, God will bring forth justice in the, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Jesus will even... Uh, talk about the need for for justice. He's talking about hell a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and talked about hell, and, and and but also he talked about justice for the those yeah. who are the outcast, right? Yeah, those who were the poor, the needy, the outcast. And one of the things that that we'll get to this perhaps in a little bit that we see in the Old Testament law is that there is a desire for justice there. Uh, in the Old Testament law that's very much different from what we find in other ancient Near Eastern law codes, mm-hmm. if you want to use that, even use that term. And uh, that really separates the Old Testament Israel mm-hmm. as a community of faith, as the covenant community of God from the rest of the nations. Wow. And what it does is it makes um, – if you think of the idea of holiness, for instance, mm-hmm. what is holiness? Well, holiness is separation – but it's also dedication to God. Well, what makes Israel separate and dedicated to God? What shows that they are separate from the nations and dedicated to God? And one of the things that you find in the Torah, the Old Testament law, are laws that talk about the mistreatment of the outcast and yeah. the uh, the need to to welcome and even provide for the alien and the orphan and the widow, things you don't find in these mm-hmm. other law codes. And that separated them out as a dedicated people to God. So what we see is God is forming a people for himself, specifically we see in the book of Exodus. He's taken them out of slavery. Now what he's doing is he's shaping them to be a people who are different from Mm -hmm. everybody else. He's actually shaping him through the law to be a light to the nations, to be different than the rest of the world. I think that leads us into our conversation with the Mosaic Law. Mm -hmm. Before we maybe target some of the specifics, um, give us give us some some examples of how would the Mosaic Law stand up to and be better than laws of the day. I, I know we often reference the Code of Hammurabi mm-hmm. and different things like that. Um, how would you say this Mosaic Law is better than the laws of the day? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think um, for one thing that Israel's obedience to the law was not obedience to a code of conduct mm-hmm. as much as it was to a covenant lord. Yeah, That separates the Mosaic law out from all these other law codes, which were basically just civil types of codes. But for Israel, their law was something much deeper. It was a covenantal um, document that mm-hmm. described how they were to act within the covenant relationship with God. And I know you guys have uh, talked about covenant as well in one yeah. of your podcasts, which uh, if you probably remember this from my classes, I see is probably the main theme in the entire Bible, yeah. something that helps us to understand and put our Bibles together. Yeah. And it describes who God is ultimately. God is a covenant God. He is about, as you said, forming a people for himself, and mm-hmm. he's still about that. Right? Exactly. He's still about forming people's for himself, for his glory in this world today. Mm-hmm. So what is the guide that relationship? Well, the the covenant relationship is guided by, in the Old Testament, by the Torah. Mm-hmm. Right? It's guided by this idea that um, within the covenant community of faith, there are things that are, are specified by God to 
be principles for governing that covenant relationship. Mm-hmm. And you can boil them down really to the Ten Commandments. Yes, yeah. And um, if you actually we'll, – we perhaps can talk about the Ten Commandments further in a minute. But if you think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are often treated in the, as this legalistic document, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the Ten Commandments begin with a verse or a series of, of statements that are rarely quoted when you see the Ten Commandments posted up on a wall. Mm-hmm. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So the Ten Commandments are not a legalistic document in the sense that you do these things to, to uh, earn salvation from God. Yeah. The salvation has been provided through this covenant relationship. Wow. And res- the response to that is the the obedience to the Ten Commandments. Wow. And what what I like to liken it to is another covenant relationship that we have in our modern uh, day mm-hmm. today, and that is the the covenant relationship of a of a marriage. Yeah. And I don't know if you used that when you were talking about Yeah, we did. We we sort of closed out that podcast with with a covenant that everybody at least could understand a little bit that's sure. participated in. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's some differences obviously between marriage and the covenant that God has with His people, both mm-hmm. in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. Obviously, it's a it's a covenant relationship that is a relationship not between equals, but mm-hmm. between a Lord and yeah. and subjects. But at the same time, there are things that you that are really similar between a marriage relationship and a covenant relationship. There are ceremonies, for instance, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Uh, that bring people into the covenant relationship. There's a pre-existing relationship that's solidified by means of this covenant. There are uh, signs of the covenant, whether it's uh, circumcision, whether it's uh, baptism in the New Testament as a sign of the covenant relationship. Um, but when we get to uh, this idea of, well, what role does the law play? I think it plays a similar role, for instance, that marriage vows have in a marriage relationship. Mm-hmm. So when I was married to my wife, we both wrote out our vows. I encourage all all students to actually, when they're getting married, to write out their own vows. Don't pull mm-hmm. them off the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, write <laughs> out your own vows. <laughs> uh, and, and you're making this commitment – to your spouse based on this covenant relationship that you're entering into. Mm -hmm. And when we wrote out our vows, we read them to each other, and then we actually have them posted in our house. That's great. Now, uh, why do we have them posted? Well, it's not so that my wife, uh, when I disobey one of the vows, can go over there and say, hey, you did this wrong, (laughs) you know, and remind me of all the different vows I was taking. (laughs) But it it is an expression of the devotion that I have for my wife. Uh, so the vows are not – I'm not adhering to them in any type of legalistic sense, mm-hmm. right? But I'm adhering to them as an expression of my love for my wife. Wow. And in the same way, Israel was to to live out the Torah as an expression of their love for God. And I don't think that changes when we get to the New Testament because Absolutely when not. Jesus summarizes the Torah – he summarizes it by quoting verses from the Torah itself, yeah. Deuteronomy 6, 5, and then also uh, Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Mm-hmm. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that idea of love in the Old Testament context is a covenantal term, and it, is, it must be understood in that covenantal active sense. Mm-hmm. So they are 
when they said they love the Lord their God, it's not just this warm, fuzzy feeling that they're having towards God, but yeah. they are actively living out their faith and devotion to God through through uh, acts of obedience wow. and acts of devotion in the same way that a husband should live out his devotion for his wife mm-hmm. uh, by carrying out his vows that he makes in the marriage ceremony. Wow. That really transforms the way you look at the Old Testament law, I yeah. think, because then you you start to see it as um, as as something that is much more uh, relationship driven than uh, in any kind of legalistic sense. You're not which, working for life; you're working from the life that sure. God has already paid for yeah. for you, and then expressing that devotion back. Now, I will say that when you look at the Old Testament law, that there were Within the law itself, within this covenant relationship, there were also boundaries within that relationship. Uh, so when Israel did stray from that covenant relationship, this is another divergence, I think, from a marriage analogy. Mm-hmm. When they did stray from that marriage relationship, that covenantal relationship that they had with the Lord, um, they were held accountable Yeah, uh, through blessings and cursings. Mm-hmm. And, and these are, if you look at Leviticus 26, for instance, um, and then Deuteronomy 28, you find these lists of blessings and cursings that really set forward, you know, if you obey the covenant, this will happen. If you disobey the covenant, this will happen. Mm-hmm. Again, those the, these aren't uh, meant as a punitive measure as much as they are a disciplinary measure, which is different, right? Mm-hmm. Discipline is there for the purpose of bringing people back into the covenant relationship, not just to punish somebody for for leaving the covenant relationship. Exactly, yeah. So even that, though, is a gracious act of God, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because um, you know, it's gracious for God to discipline, even as it's gracious for a parent to discipline a child when they veer from the, the way that they should be going on. Exactly. Um, and by the way, when we get to the New Testament, we have these same things, don't we? Yes. Where uh, the author of Hebrews says that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Yeah. And that is a form of grace on the part of God to keep us in the path uh, that is the path of righteousness, ultimately. God isn't ending his covenant with us and fully and just judging us for straying from the covenant. He's graciously trying to pull us back mm-hmm. in to obeying the covenant and living within the blessings sure. of the covenant. And in the same way, when you look at the New Testament church, there the idea of church discipline, which is affirmed over and over again by uh, the New Testament writers, particularly Paul and Corinthians, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that church discipline has as its purpose within the covenant community itself a way of preserving the purity and the holiness of the covenant community, but also as a grace for those who are straying and on a path of destruction yeah. to get them back yes. and yeah. to pull them back into uh, the, the place where they need to be mm-hmm. within a healthy covenant community of faith. That's fantastic, and I think that sort of sets up the framework where now as we go into this law that we often see as legalistic or as, uh, I mean, just downright scary or whatever, that God's actually graciously working through mm-hmm. that. Now, with that being said, you want to get into the nitty-gritty? Well, let me, let me make a few more comments <laughs> about, right. about, the, um, about the law, uh, the purpose of the law. Itself, okay. Because I think this is important as well, okay. and you've mentioned this already, uh, that one of the purposes of the law – is ultimately a missional purpose. So the law was to was given to Israel to set Israel apart um, and to show that they're dedicated to God. We've talked about that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in so doing, what they are 
doing for the world is showing forth the character of God. They're showing forth his holiness. They're showing forth uh, his goodness, his mm-hmm. grace, his wisdom. Um, Deuteronomy 4 is, is a passage uh, that, that I often think of where uh, what separates Israel apart from the nations is not their number, it's not their power, it's not their greatness uh, in and of themselves, but it's the fact that they have a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call upon him, mm-hmm. and they have a code of, of uh, this covenantal law uh, that's as righteous as it is. Wow. So, um, so here's Israel. They're given this covenant relationship with God. They're given this law to live out their covenant relationship with God. And they're placed uh, in a, a location, geographically speaking, that's right smack dab in the middle of all the other nations. Mm-hmm. So that if you have to go anywhere in the ancient world, whether it's from Egypt to Mesopotamia, to modern day, what would be modern day Iraq and Iran, mm-hmm. uh, if you're going from uh, the area of Turkey, which was the ancient Hittite Empire, uh, down back to Egypt or to um, uh, to, to Moabite territory, guess where you have to go? You've got to go straight through Israel. They are at a crossroads of the nation so that they can be a light to the nations. Wow. And wow. so you've got Exodus 19 when God calls Israel to itself, right before he gives the Ten Commandments, right before he gives them the covenant. And he says in Exodus 19, See, I've brought you to myself on eagle's wings. I, and I have uh, made you my own treasure possession among all the nations, and I have made you a holy nation. And then he says this very key phrase, a kingdom of priests. Mm. So what the priests were to do for the nation of Israel itself, Israel was to do for the entire world. They were a missional nation. They had a missional purpose. Now, what about us? Yeah. You know, uh, when we get to First Peter and First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter quotes from that text in Nexus 19, and he says, again, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why are you to be holy? Why are you to live out your covenant relationship with God through Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ? Then he says, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wow. So just as Israel had a missional purpose, so also the modern church has a missional purpose. Now, that that may not shock us in the New Testament context, but I think oftentimes in the Old Testament context, we think of Israel being kind of this cloistered, monastic nation that's just existing for themselves yeah. and just to have this relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And God has no concern about the nations as a whole. Yeah, they're just the special chosen people and nobody else really matters. And But that's never been the case. From exactly. the very beginning when God called Abraham to be the patriarch of this nation that he was going to found through Abraham's seed in Genesis 12, he says to, to Abraham, I've, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, but through you all the nations will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And when we get to Jesus, of course, we understand how that's going to, to occur. Yeah. In, in Matthew 1, when he calls, uh, he has that genealogy and he calls Jesus a son of Abraham. Yeah. That's the reason that yeah. Jesus is fulfilling that promise that was given to Abraham that Abraham was to be a blessing to the nation. So that's one thing to remember about the law is mm-hmm. that it's a missional, has a missional purpose. Another thing to remember is that it is, and we've, Kind of hit on this already, but it is a grace from God. Yeah, this is uh, this is an interesting concept because um, we don't often think of law as being gracious, right? We mm-hmm. think of law as being um, 
you know, burdensome. We think of it as being, uh, and and perhaps it's because we at times take it in a legalistic way. Yeah. And if you do take it in that way, it is going to be burdensome. But for the Israelites, it was something that was viewed as a grace from God. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at Psalm one nineteen, which is of course that great long Psalm one hundred seventy six verses, yeah. uh, it's a uh, it's an, an acrostic. An acrostic is where you have. Uh, verses beginning, beginning with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's cool. So you've got eight verses, um, eight sets of eight verses that are all beginning with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So, I'm going to have to admit I don't remember much of my <laughs> Hebrew alphabet. <laughs> well, if you look at Psalm 119, at, at the very beginning, verse 1, it'll say Aleph, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the first word in, first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then you'll have eight verses, each beginning with a sub, each beginning with an Aleph, a, mm-hmm. a word that begins with Aleph. Then you get to uh, verses 9 through 16, and you've got Beit, all the way down to Tav. And so you've got 22 times 8, and you get 176. Mm-hmm. What that expresses is – Perfection. It expresses completeness. And yeah. what is it celebrating? Well, every single verse except for maybe one or two in Psalm 119 uses a synonym of Torah. Wow. So it's expressing the completeness and the beauty of Torah. At times in Psalm 119, the author will say, oh, how I love your Torah. Oh, how I love your law. Well, wow. how can he say that? Well, he can say it because God has graciously given it to them that this expressed God's nearness to them. Uh, in a way, to bring back the marriage analogy, it's those marriage vows that show that there's this relationship behind it. Mm-hmm. I can celebrate the vows I have with my wife because I'm celebrating my wife. Wow. So um, it is viewed as a grace from God. And, and here's, here's the distinction with the other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Mm-hmm. Again, other cultures had views of gods, Right. Most of the cultures around them were were polytheistic, believed in many gods. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of those gods were deemed to be um, malicious at times. Mm -hmm. They were capricious, meaning that they didn't really have a reason to act the way they did. Yeah. Uh, They did not have to be just. They did not have to be good. In fact, many times you can almost imagine them as being these deified Despots, yeah, human right? personalities almost exactly, yeah. and they would they were manipulate manipulative and manipulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, they were imperfect at times. The purpose of creation really was their their creation stories are very odd. It's sure, not like yeah. God, you know, purposefully designing everything and people. It's like these random events, mm-hmm. and then the world came about. Yeah, and the you know they're creating human beings basically to be their slaves. Yeah. Um, which goes into another topic that you talked about earlier, I think, with the image of God. But yeah. with, 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 this, um, with this view of God, though, uh, they didn't know who the gods were necessarily, uh, they, at least in a personal sense. They didn't know uh, what the gods required. They didn't know uh, if they have done something wrong and if they did something wrong, how to be reconciled to the mm-hmm. gods. So it was really a superstitious existence that they were living. Wow! And um, there's a – I invite your, your listeners to, to look this up on Google later. If you look up the prayer to every god, and what you will find there is an Assyrian prayer that was found in the um, – it was found in the library of an Assyrian king dating back to around the 7th century B.C., a guy named Ashurbanipal. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, this prayer to every god will say things like, uh, may the God whom I've offended be quieted towards me. May the goddess whom I've offended be quieted towards me. The thing that I've committed, I, indeed I do not know. The goddess I've offended, indeed I do not know. Wow. So it's really a pitiful prayer by somebody who knows they've done something wrong, and yet they don't know how to be reconciled to a God that mm-hmm. they don't even know. Wow. And then you have the scriptures, and you have the, the, the covenant relationship that God has with his people, and he is a God who has made himself known, mm-hmm. made his character known. He is consistent in that character, and he is a God who has made his requirements known to his people as well, and he is a God who uh, has made the way of reconciliation known to his people as well. And wow. you can see, once you see all those things, you can see that this is something to be celebrated and the psalmist in Psalm 119 can say, oh, how I love your Torah. Mm-hmm. Oh, how I love your law. Wow. So it almost lifts the burden away where before it sounds like they're almost living in anxiety. Like, I don't know this God. I don't know how to be right. Maybe attributing some of the bad things in their life to the God's punishment sure. yeah. and really not knowing what to do where this law clarifies who the Lord is, how he's reconciled them, how to be reconciled, and how to live your life. And ultimately – when it stacks up to the other laws uh, of the day in a much better way. Sure, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, with that being said, yeah. you want to dive into Let's dive it? In. Okay. Let's dive into the weird laws. We've got um, – so w- our framework now being something that the perception of the law was overall good. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. It's gracious. The, the discipline is meant to bring us back into the covenant blessings. We know that the law is good. So now let's work out some different okay. things. All right. So for instance – in the law, how do we view capital punishment for, say, homosexuals? Yeah. Big topic today. The reason I bring that up is because especially atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and mm-hmm. Sam Harris and that whole crowd, they love to bring things like this up and say – and just kind of put it in our face and say, look, your God's evil. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's, let's establish some frameworks here. Okay. So number one, um, to understand Old Testament law, you, want to, you need to understand the covenant. Mm-hmm. So it is within that covenant relationship. You need to understand the purpose. And so we've gone over a lot of these things already. Mm-hmm. You also want to understand that in, in light of its original context. Um, and you want to understand the principles that were guiding those laws. Um, they were written for an ancient culture in an ancient time. Uh, they were specific in time and, ten- and geography. And yet, at the same time, they were um, they were laws that that do establish certain principles that show the character of God, mm-hmm. right? So, um, with that said, uh, you've got um, you want to understand ultimately with with these laws that we said we find in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. What are um, what are they establishing for us today? Yeah. Uh, at no point do we find, particularly in the New Testament, but even a lot in the Old Testament, do we find um, these uh, laws as establishing um, this is, these are things you must do. Uh, in fact, when we get to the New Testament, Paul actually understands them in a different way. For instance, a lot of what we find with capital punishment uh, we find that Paul actually applies it in a way of of executing people from the church, not, yeah. not church killing discipline. them, but but 
throwing them out of the, mm-hmm. the church. For instance, you know the the episode with um, the issue in, in First Corinthians where you have the the man who is uh, having relations with his um, is it his husband? Her, it's his, like his, his father's like stepmom, right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. So it, it in a situation where that would have been a situation where you'd have capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually something that is um, that is deemed to be a, a church discipline issue in the New Testament. Context. So what Paul is doing is he's keeping these laws within the context of God's people. That what God is establishing in you know Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy is setting the moral basis for God's people, mm-hmm. not all governments everywhere for all of them. Yeah, time. yeah. So you don't want to apply what you find. Uh, in a uh, in a covenantal document mm-hmm. for a a nation that was to be ruled by God, you don't want to apply that to secular governments and say this is establishing norms for yeah. what secular governments should do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I would also say that that you know rightly understood in the covenant original context, we can understand a lot of the character of God. And a lot of what he would apply to us in a covenant community mm-hmm. today. Uh, so let me give you an example. This often uh, it's a fun one that's often brought up, and I think I even brought it up in class mm-hmm. when you guys were uh, in in my Old Testament class, and that's Leviticus 19, where you have uh, the prescription against tattoos. Oh, this is a so, fun conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so people read that and they say, "Oh, I can't have tattoos." Yeah, right. It's in the Bible. Uh, it's right in there. the Bible. So let's let's set it in its context. Well, first mm-hmm. of all, let's set it in its literary context. Leviticus 19, the whole book of Leviticus is telling the people how to live out their covenant, the covenant with God. Mm-hmm. But specifically, when you get to Leviticus 19, this is the heart of what's called the holiness code mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. So it will say things like, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Mm-hmm. So everything in Leviticus 19 is geared towards helping the people to be separate and dedicated to God. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Leviticus 20, 26, I think, says – it defines holiness for us where it says, you, are, you shall be holy uh, to the Lord for I have separated from you from the nations that you should be mine. Ah. So it defines holiness for us there. So in this context, holiness is being different than the nations that exactly. are literally surrounding them exactly. physically. So – the the law the, all these laws then have a have, have as their purpose separating Israel out and dedicating them dedicating them to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what about Leviticus nineteen? I forget the exact verse reference where mm-hmm. it talks about tattoos. It's towards the end of the chapter. Well, uh, in the ancient context, cultural context, uh, tattoos were a um, a way in which. Uh, Pagans would participate in pagan religious rituals, mm-hmm. uh, whether they were mourning rituals, uh, cuts in your body for the dead. Uh, sometimes they were a way of identifying themselves with certain uh, pagan um, religions, such as ancestor worship. Mm-hmm. So in other words, in, in Israel, if you got a tattoo, you were purposely identifying yourself with pagan elements of society. You're purposely identifying yourself with the Canaanites. Yeah. Therefore, you are saying to God, I don't care that you want me to be separate and dedicated to you. I'm going to be 
I'm going to be joined to the Canaanites and not dedicated to you. Wow. I'm going to be the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, well, what about today? Uh, does that mean that a tattoo today is something that that doesn't um, is it? Does a tattoo today? I guess this is the question. Does yeah. a tattoo today identify us with pagan elements of society? <laughs> and does it does it show that we're not dedicated to God? Exactly. I think. And I, I don't want to dive too deep into the tattoo argument. We, we know, we still got to get to a lot else. But I, I would say, when you read this in context, what you're saying is that God is not making an argument from, you know, your body is a temple, or maybe some of the mar- modern arguments we hear today. What God is saying is that through this action, mm-hmm. you are identifying with idolatry and directly defying who I've called you exactly. to be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you could conceivably get a tattoo that would do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, if you got a uh, like Charles Manson had a <laughs> tattoo of a swastika on his forehead, yeah, you know, yeah. it's probably not the right thing. But you know, I get uh, I get a lot of students who will. Uh, one of the most common emails that I will get from students is, "Can you tell me this word in the Hebrew or this phrase in the Hebrew?" And I know the exact question is going to follow. I want to get. I want to get get a tattoo. That's funny. <laughs> Have you ever messed with somebody? <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually have a policy against this because I don't want to get sued for having the wrong phrase given. But anyway. Um, if you ever go AWOL, I mean, you're going to quit, Anderson. You're moving off. You should just tell somebody like the worst word in Hebrew you know and then just like move to South America. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so, you know, if, if somebody gets a Hebrew tattoo, is that yeah. identifying themselves with certain el- pagan elves? I don't think so. So. Yeah. Now, there may be other scriptures that you can bring to bear on the whole tattoo issue, but Leviticus is not one of them. Exactly, contextually. Um, yeah. Same thing, for instance, uh, in Leviticus 19, you have a, a law that says don't, don't, uh, don't harvest the edges of your field, for instance. Yeah. Well, m- probably most of the people who are listening to this right now don't have, I don't even have, <laughs> don't have a field. <laughs> don't, you know, maybe a garden in the backyard yeah. or something like that. But what's the principle gu- guiding that? Mm-hmm. Well, the principle is, you know, from the produce and from the the profit that God gives you, holding back some of that to provide for the least of of these, to provide mm-hmm. for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and um, this is something. When you do that, that's something that separates the church today, mm-hmm. God's people today, as it did back then, from the other elements of society that says, forget about those people. Wow. And it shows that you're dedicated to God. And and ultimately, one of the things that caused Israel's downfall was that they they didn't do this, right? Yeah. And they became joined with the societies around them because they were acting just like them. Wow. And, of course, when Jesus comes along, he, he targets the same thing mm-hmm. uh, and harps on a lot of the same issues that the prophets had been harping on, that you guys um, haven't been caring for these. And this is a spiritual barometer for the health of God's covenant people, and you're failing. Wow. So, um, you know, whether it's whether it's the tattoos or whether it's harming the edges of your beard or whether yeah. it's you know it's all need all needs to be understood in a contextual way. Wow. Uh, and it and you also want to understand what is the principle guiding that. So, what's the principle guiding some of the sexual? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mores that are given in the mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Well, I think it shows that God is a God who cares about 
our sexual purity. Mm-hmm. God is a God who also cares about the institution of the family yeah. and an institution of marriage that was established all the way back in in, uh, in Genesis, Genesis 2. Yeah. Right? So um, I think when you, when you have things like uh, capital punishment, uh, it shows the seriousness mm-hmm. to the people, even though uh, in a lot of cases in the Old Testament it wasn't carried out. Wow. Uh, but it shows that this is something that is serious, and it was left up to. It wasn't left up to vigilantes to go out and, yeah. and to carry out the justice, but it was left to those that God uh, had placed into to power, if uh, to in that covenant community mm-hmm. and leadership, uh, decide. Wow! And, and the same way in the local church today, it's placed in the the, el- the role of elder pastor to um, to lead the church in and carrying out church discipline wow. today. So it sounds like it it uh, it would benefit the church to uh, faithfully and carefully and thoughtfully return to the Old Testament law and say, "Hey, what can we draw from here?" It exactly. seems like Jesus did it. He did. Uh, yeah. yeah, they didn't like it. That's what got yeah. the prophets killed, and you know, ultimately him. Sure. Though he gave up his life, but um, you know, it it's a tough message. But it sounds like one we need to return to. And and um, when you look at what Jesus taught, uh, and you look at specifically at some of the 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 laws in the Old Testament that speak of more moral issues. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus actually raised the stakes. Yeah, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, "You have heard it said, don't commit adultery." But I say to you, uh, you know, the person who's looked at with lust yeah. upon somebody else's has committed adultery in their heart. That's wow. raising the stakes of the issue. But really, he's he's talking about something that the prophets themselves had talked mm-hmm. about. That the heart of the the law is not just rote obedience, but it's a, it's devotion to your covenant Lord. Yeah, wow! I think that's fantastic. So. We are sitting right at forty one minutes, so we're gonna <laughs> okay. we're gonna head to the others. I could talk about this all day. This is like this is fantastic. Um, this is teaching me a lot. Um, let's move on to, to one of the biggies. Can you can you knock this one out? You got <laughs> okay. it. All right, let's talk about the destruction of the Canaanites. Okay. This, the reason I bring this up is, again, um, when you hear arguments from modern-day atheists, this is actually probably their number one. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is their number one argument um, that proves that God is angry and unjust and mm-hmm. all of this crazy stuff. They're going to attack him with this. Yeah. Talk to me. Give, give me the whole breakdown. What is this? Why did God command this? How do we sure. interpret this? Today, what does this look like? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dr. Cripps sent me an email and said, your questions are ambitious. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is one of them. So let, let me start out by giving a few good resources. Okay. Uh, because obviously we don't have a lot of time here mm-hmm. and we don't have enough time to carry – uh, to, to This carry could be it its out own hour-long podcast, yeah, exactly. I imagine. Well, it could be a 10-hour-long podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the 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 um, books that has helped me the most on this issue is a book by Christopher Wright. Okay, W R I G H T. Wonderful Old Testament ethicist, mm-hmm. uh, Old Testament theologian. It has a number of great books. Anything you find by Christopher Wright, read it, mm-hmm. and it'll really help you with understanding the Old Testament. Uh, he wrote a book called "The God I Don't Understand." Uh, probably was written maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. And he actually talks about a number of different issues. Uh, for instance, the issue of justification. Uh, that how can God, who is um, who is a just God, 
pardon such wicked sinners as us. Wow. You know, that's a hard issue to understand. Yeah. But he does spend two chapters dealing with this issue of the destruction of the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you could expand this out to also, you know, the flood. Yeah. And so many other instances in the mm-hmm. Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Uh, and talk about the justice of God meeting, being meted out in this kind of global way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a really good resource. Uh, another one is one that I don't quite agree with on everything, but um, it's a book by John Walton okay. and his son, uh, and it's called The Lost World of the Conquest. Mm-hmm. And Walton uh, has a lot of books in this kind of Lost World series where he seeks to understand the Old Testament in its ancient Near Eastern context. And they're all really helpful mm-hmm. and really challenging. There's a great one on Genesis 1, for instance, yeah. which you ought to do a podcast on as yeah, well. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, and it's, it's uh, called The Lost World of Genesis 1. He's got mm-hmm. The Lost World of Genesis 2. He's got The Lost World of the Flood. But here's a good one, uh, Lost World of, of the Conquest. Mm-hmm. So those are two really good resources. Um, and there's some some – Recent ones also. William Lane Craig has some good resources on the okay. web. Have you read um, um, "Is God a Moral Monster" by yeah, Paul Copen? Paul Copen is mm-hmm. another one. Uh, he takes a more philosophical approach that I don't think is as helpful. Mm-hmm. But that's just me because I'm not a philosopher. Yeah, but, uh, I, I prefer to see it, it within its biblical context and try to understand it in that way. That's good. Um, but uh, so those are some good resources. Let me also point out that this is a hard issue. And I think for Christians, one of the things, one of the best things you can do when you're having an apologetic conversation or a conversation with somebody who's struggling with this is to admit that Mm -hmm. and to admit we don't know all the answers to even this issue. And frankly, there are a lot of issues in the Bible that we don't know all the answers to. Okay. So Mm -hmm. uh, just that admission can break down walls and barriers between uh, you and someone else and promote good discussion. Yeah. Uh, and and that vulnerability on your part can actually perhaps lead them to pursue the issue in a, in greater depth from um, from some of these resources I mentioned, rather than just taking a hard stance exactly. and and not allowing some wiggle room. So, with that said, let me also say that there's some bad answers to this question. <laughs> yeah. So one of the bad answers is, well, that was just the Old Testament. Just forget about it. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't need to worry about it. God acts in a different way in the New Testament. What we've already seen mm-hmm. is that God does have that same character in the yeah. New Testament. Another bad answer is that, well, it's just a metaphor for spiritual warfare today. Mm. No, these were actually Canaanites that were being killed, right? Yeah. Uh, and then another bad answer is that, uh, well, the Israelites just thought God said that, <laughs> and then did but, it, but and did it anyway. It and they, they misheard God. <laughs> uh, but that's not the way to text the scripture. Yeah. So th- if you hear people making those, an- those types of arguments, don't follow those. Yeah, <laughs> those, are yeah. not good, those are not good ways of answering. Um, the way I like to pursue it after mm-hmm. – those types of, of provisos is to think about some considerations. So one consideration is to understand it within its ancient context. And uh, Christopher Wright in his book does a good job on this, mm-hmm. uh, that this is an ancient genre. 
what we find in Joshua is an ancient genre, and the genre is a conquest narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, if you read through Joshua, it per, it portrays the conquest as being a complete and total obliteration of the Canaanites. I mean, we're talking women, children, all of them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, I will say that it was just three cities that experienced that. It was Mm -hmm. Hatzor, Jericho, and Ai. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, it's three cities. It's three cities, right? Yeah. Um, But it's also a a genre that – and this is hard for us to kind of grasp – uh, but the ancient reader would read that as a genre that was meant to exalt the conqueror. Wow. Right? So uh, it would present, for instance, this conquest as a complete victory on the part of the Israelites. But then mm-hmm. when we get to the book of Judges, they're still around. They're still around. Yeah. They, they were still fighting them, they were still trying to drive them out. Mm-hmm. They, and they were fairly unsuccessful yeah. in much of the conquest. So. Um, you know, we read that and we say, well, that's unhistorical, but the ancient reader would have read it. And this goes to the issue of genre. Mm-hmm. The ancient reader would have read that as, okay, this is purposeful showing the completion of this to glorify the conqueror. Mm-hmm. So that's one, I think, consideration is to make sure any – this is true for any scripture, right? Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you're reading it according to the genre rules of that scripture. Yeah. So if you read, for instance um, – just a, a prophecy, for instance. Don't necessarily read the prophets as only talking about future-oriented predictions. Well, and you can't read it ultra literally, exactly. As well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same thing with with the apocalyptic literature and yeah. and, uh, and Revelation. Yeah. Uh, so you read it the way they would have read it, and that that's really helpful for all the Bible because mm-hmm. uh, we want to read it as if it was written yesterday. Yeah, and it wasn't. Uh, we know we intuitively know how to interpret genres today. Yeah, we intuitively know how to interpret an editorial in a newspaper versus a news news story in a newspaper versus an obituary mm-hmm. in a newspaper. Now I'm going to admit we struggle with satire. The we amount do. of Babylon Bee articles <laughs> they get post, posted as if they're real this is, is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, yeah, but uh, when you grow up in a culture, though, you understand intuitively how to to interpret genres mm-hmm. and you understand what you're supposed to get out of a genre. Yeah. We don't un- intuitively know that with biblical genres. Mm-hmm. So you really want to ask, what is the author trying to, to help us to get out of a particular text yeah. when we read it? Um, and when you read through Joshua, what is he trying to get us to do? Mm-hmm. What is he trying to, to get us to get out of that text? Well, I think it's to, Namely, to see God as a faithful God. In fact, at the end of Joshua, in Joshua twenty-one forty-five, I think it was twenty-one forty-five, it says that none of the promises of God fell flat. In other words, wow. he he uh, fulfilled his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that that I think is he wants the people to be faithful to him. Yeah, and to understand that God is has won this victory for them, so that they can be faithful as a as a nation that's going to be a missional nation for the rest of the nations. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the book of Joshua, you got that famous passage in Joshua 24 where Joshua is asking the Israelites, you know, will you serve God? And they yeah. say, yes, we will. And Joshua says, no, we won't. <laughs> no, you yeah. won't. Yeah. And, then, uh, and, and then Joshua says, no, but for, for me and my house, this is the verse that your grandmother has posted in yeah. the, 
in the in the uh, kitchen, right? Yeah. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, what's uh-huh. he wanting to? What's the author want us to do by reading that? Well, he's inviting us to say that same thing mm-hmm. based on the fact that God has been faithful to us. He wants us to serve the Lord in that to respond with that faithful covenant obedience to God. Exactly, just as He has been faithful to us. Mm-hmm. So. Genre really helps with a lot of what we find in, in Joshua. Yeah. That said, I think all, there's some other considerations to bring up. Number one, uh, you have – I guess this would be number two. Yeah. You have um, the fact that God is a God who is just, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet he's also patient in that justice. So if you look at Genesis 15, this is the passage where Abraham – is called uh, by God. Well, this is where God is forming a covenant relationship with Abraham, mm-hmm. right? And he's having a covenant ceremony with Abraham. Yeah. And at the end of that covenant ceremony, he's, he looks forward to the Exodus. And he says, these events won't happen uh, when I bring you back into the promised land until the sin of the Amorites is complete. Mm-hmm. Well, the Amorites is just another term for the Canaanites. Yeah. So God was patient with the Canaanites for – some 400 years. And what were the what were the atrocities they were committing? Put us that sure. picture where God's being patient. How how great is his patience? Not just uh, so, in time, yeah. but in what they were you doing. Yeah, the, the Canaanite practices uh, they were they were a fertility cult, mm-hmm. right? So they uh, engaged in uh, fertility rites that often included sacred prostitution um, and those types of just really horrendous types of mm-hmm. religious behavior. Yeah. So behavior uh, that was was deemed correct because it was within the context of their cult. Mm, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you had – among some of the Canaanites, you had the practice of child sacrifice as well. Yeah. Now, Israelites later on engaged in some of these same things. Yeah, adopted uh, and, it. And God held them to account in the same way that he held the, the Canaanites to account. Which gives us a picture of exactly why – God didn't want them to be around. The exactly. Canaanites. So that brings us to a second, a third consideration: is mm-hmm. that God is doing this as part of the whole redemptive historical plan mm-hmm. to bring Israel into this place where they can be this light to the nations. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, uh, let me just play devil's advocate sure. here. Yeah. Why are they not a light to the Canaanites? Should they not go <laughs> hug the Canaanites and tell them about the good news of the Lord instead of killing them? <laughs> Again, I, I think I think what you can say is that some of these things we don't we don't yeah. know. But what we can say is that they were a light to the Canaanites in some way. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the most fascinating passages and one of the most profound texts in all the Bible, mm-hmm. particularly all the historical books from Joshua through Esther, is Joshua chapter two, mm-hmm. where you have the story of Rahab, this prostitute, and frankly perhaps was a Canaanite cult prostitute. Yeah. We don't know. The mm-hmm. Bible doesn't say. And so here's this woman who is not just a Canaanite, but she's the worst of the Canaanites. But what happens to her? She – here, if you read through that text, she, she says to – she has these spies come to her, of mm-hmm. course, and uh, she sends them out the, to the roof and hides them while the Canaanites' authorities come mm-hmm. and try to track them down. So she ends up saving these Israelite spies. Yeah. And then she goes up to them after she has saved them. And she says, I've done this for one reason. 
I, we have heard how your God has done all these things for you, mm. defeated all these enemies for you. We heard all these great things about his saving work on your behalf. And when we heard it, our hearts within us melted, is the word that's used there. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't have any strength left in us. And now, she says, now I know that the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. In other wow. words, she makes this confession based on what she has heard God doing on behalf mm-hmm. of his people. She makes the confession that God is a God who uh, is the true God. Wow. And so this Canaanite cult prostitute responds with faith to God, and she's spared from, ultimately, uh, from the destruction that would come upon Jericho. Wow. Which shows, I think, that even this Canaanite cult prostitute, the lowest of the low, could be brought in to the community of faith uh, based on this gracious nature of God if she repented and, and, and came to faith in, in Yahweh. Wow. Now, so in what's, summary to this, just so that we can kind of hop in onto some other things, so what we're looking at here is God is patient with the Canaanites. He is just mm-hmm. um, because of the, I mean, the crazy sins and the cult practices and everything there, and that the message went forth, and those who would accept that message would have been spared. Mm-hmm. And then what we know is that through a proper reading of the literature, um, it's portrayed to be this total conquering, but what we know is they were still hanging around, yeah. which yeah. means that inevitably not all were killed. Some mm. had escaped. Rahab, I guess, evidently knew they were coming. Yeah. Um, so there was sort of that opportunity for some to go. And, and one thing needs to be brought up with Rahab as well is the phenomenal thing about, about this whole story is that if you read, go ahead to, to Matthew, in Matthew mm-hmm. chapter 1, you read that genealogy of Jesus, and guess who we find there? Rahab. There's Rahab right in the middle of it. Wow. And, uh, and it shows that God, again, uh, by including the worst of the worst yeah. in, his, in the genealogy of his Messiah, is a God who is concerned of the, about the nations as a whole. That's beautiful. It shows a, a wonderful picture of God's grace, mm-hmm. um, even amidst those who he's you know, collectively coming to judge. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Um, all right, let's move on. <laughs> let's see if we can cover um, in just a few minutes. We'll move on. We'll skip the um, Elisha story or Elijah story. Um, you know, you, you, listeners, you can go look that up yourself. <laughs> it's a wild story. They call a prophet bald. Some kids uh, make fun of a prophet for his uh, balding problem, and God sends bears after him. You just <laughs> look that up yourself. <laughs> All right. So in bridging the gap um, to the New Testament, so far what we see is that God's law is gracious, is to be celebrated. Um, it's based out of God's saving work, bringing them out of Egypt. They aren't working for life. God's made a way for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. His laws are good. They're, they're gracious uh, when put up against the laws of the day. And then we've seen, even with things um, like the Canaanite destruction, is it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, it, it, it is not necessarily to be read l- literally mm-hmm. uh, in that we know that the Canaanites were still around even after this. Um, Now, as we bridge the gap to the New Testament, we've seen some New Testament in the Old Testament. God's gracious. He's loving. He saves even the worst of the worst. He uses Rahab um, so that Jesus would come from her line. Now, as we move into the New Testament, I know you've covered a little bit of it before. Real quick, where do we see in Jesus in the New Testament total some themes carry over? Sure, yeah. 
So, uh, first of all, we want to understand that that the uh, when we get to let's just talk about the law in the New mm-hmm. Testament. Um, it can be confusing, can it? When you look at the some of the statements, particularly Paul makes, yeah. where he talks about the law being a, a curse, and he talks about uh, or the curse of the law, and mm-hmm. he talks about the law being, for instance, in Romans seven, being a way of death. Yeah, you know that. Makes you think, well, that's not maybe something I want to... <laughs> Paul's saying, law bad, Jesus good, exactly. separate both. Yeah. And I think what he's operating there with is, an, is he, what he's dealing with is within the early church, there were those who said, to be saved, you have to have Jesus, but you also have to follow the law. Mm-hmm. And that's never been the case even in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. It's, it is a something that... Follows is a response to God's saving work, not um, not something that was to be seen as a legalistic way of gaining salvation. Yeah, and if you do treat it in that way, if you treat it as a way of gaining salvation, it will be a way of death. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you see it as a way of responding to God, as a guide for responding to God in the covenant relationship for God's covenant people, for instance, mm-hmm. the church, I think that's a rightly understood in this context. I think it's a it's an appropriate. Uh, way to to go. Yeah, um, we also need to understand, of course, that the law drives us to Jesus, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It because does. It, it reveals who God is. Uh, it reveals ultimately our our sinful nature. Mm-hmm. Um, it reveals uh, the fact that that we need a uh, somebody who will be our 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 sacrifice mm-hmm. and our uh, atonement, and Jesus provides that. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I think a lot of what we um, the way in which we understand the law should be understood in light of Jesus. And mm-hmm. Jesus himself talks about this, doesn't he, when he says uh, that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in, in me. Yeah. Luke 24, Matthew 5, and all those different places. Um, that said, I think also you find much of what you see in the, in the Torah, uh, those principles that we were talking about, mm-hmm. reaffirm when you get to the New Testament. And wow. Jesus reaffirms much of what we find. Yeah. Uh, in the New Testament, whether it's again the the care for the outcast and the poor, whether it's the um, the 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 need to to honor the sexual relationships that God has created mm-hmm. in marriage, um, whether it's to uh, honor those who are in authority over us and mm-hmm. governmental structures, all those things I think have their grounding in Old Testament law, the principles in the Old Testament law, yeah. and are reaffirmed in the in the New Testament. So. What I like to tell – take Leviticus 19 for example. What I like to tell students is if you look at the principles, every single one of those is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Wow. Now, they need to be rightly understood. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if, you do, if you're dealing with a law on sacrifice, yeah. you need to understand that that's fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice in the person mm-hmm. of Christ. But even in, in that, the principle there is that God does require sacrifice and uh, that requirement is fulfilled in Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's also another nuance to sacrifice, and that is that sacrifice is the the giving uh, something up for for God, right? Mm-hmm. So Paul talks about living your lives as a living sacrifice in Romans 12. Yeah. So I don't know if that was no, kind of definitely. The, you, you're kind of showing that crossover that the principles of the Old Testament yeah. are are still the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and in what ways do we see? Um, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit already. In what ways do we see God's um, 
holiness, mm-hmm. his justice, so yeah. we know that he's judging the Canaanites. What way do we see that played out in the New Testament? Maybe sure. for those who um, have sort of separated it and they view New Testament solely full mm-hmm. of love and grace and uh, have the tendency to remove holiness sure. or you yeah. know, whatever else. Well, again, Revelation is a great place to look for that. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, again, talks about hell probably more than any other person in the Definitely more than any yeah. other person in the Bible. Um, and But then we get to, to the book of Revelation, and you see God's justice it's, that will be at one time uh, in the future meted out on mm-hmm. on all the injustice and the sin that we find in – and the rebellion that we yeah. find in creation. Uh, so that's it's important to look to, to that text. But also you see uh, descriptions of God reaffirmed mm-hmm. to kind of get back to the – Excuse me. The original issue mm-hmm. uh, that we started with was: Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? And uh, for instance, in Isaiah six, you have that scene of of God and and on His throne, and the seraphim are around Him, and they're crying out, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole yeah. earth is full of His glory." And then we turn to Revelation, and you find uh, the the elders are and the angelic beings are crying out the same thing: "Holy, mm-hmm. holy, holy is the Lord." Uh, so holiness defines God both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. Um, so these these uh, these character traits of God are uh, evident in both both testaments. Mm-hmm. Let me let me give one. I know we're we're getting up on the end of yeah end of our time close. here, but uh, I think probably the most the the um, most profound and the uh, most defining. That's the, that's the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for. The most defining verse, two verses actually, mm-hmm. uh, for understanding God in the Old Testament is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And the scene is that Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's uh, receiving the, the second copy of the Ten Commandments, right? Because he's and destroyed he, the first. Yeah. <laughs> and he's asked, but, but the context here is, of course, that the Israelites have just engaged in this, pretty much breaking every single one of the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah, yeah. In Exodus 32. And with the golden calf episode, mm-hmm. and and so you have um, Moses up on the on the mountain, and he asks God to reveal Himself. He says, "Show me Your glory." Mm-hmm. And he asks God to reveal Himself, and God uh, comes before him and proclaims His name to him, and He says, "Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, literally in the Hebrew, long of nose." Yeah, <laughs> he's got a long fuse. That's funny, uh, and uh, and. And abounding in steadfast love mm-hmm. and truth, uh, it's, a, it's a paraphrase. I, mm-hmm. I don't have the scripture right in front of me. Yeah. Uh, but then he says that uh, I will not uh, let the guilty go unpunished, but I will bring in the third and fourth generation. Wow. So what you see there is 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 the characteristics of God of being patient and loving and forgiving and gracious. It's hell in tension with the characteristics of God being. Uh, just mm-hmm. and wrathful, even yeah, uh, and uh, and yet in a righteous way, yeah. Uh, and you can't separate those things. Mm-hmm. You have to join these two characters, these these twin strands of characteristics together. If you separate one or the other, you have a distorted view of God. Yeah. If you have a wrathful God that's that's uh, just all justice, uh, then you're going to have a very legalistic faith. Mm-hmm. If you have a uh, God, who's all about grace? Well, you don't. You're never going to understand grace until you understand the justice. Exactly. Of God. And you, you're going to end up living in a licentious type of way mm-hmm. at that point. 
we're saying, you know, Everything let's, let's send that grace can abound, right? Yeah, exactly. As Paul talks about and says that that's not the way to look at mm-hmm. it. But you you have to take these what are seemingly um, characteristics that are that are uh, at odds with one another mm-hmm. and keep them joined together. And never I, separate I'm, them. I'm preaching this Sunday. It just kind of comes to my mind. I think Paul kind of summarizes it best. That in Christ, God is both just and the justifier. Exactly. He does that through Jesus, Mm -hmm. lays his wrath all on Christ so that we can be justified, but his wrath will go forth um, for sin. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, Romans 3 is a great text to look at for just understanding that complex but true biblical character of God. Exactly. And that Exodus 34 passage, by the way, if you you get it, I, Mm -hmm. I, I would encourage you to memorize it. Wow, uh, and I would encourage you as you read through the Old Testament, particularly, notice how many times authors in the Old Testament reference back to it. Wow, uh, over and over again they reference back to it, and there's a reason for that, and it's because that that is God saying, "This is who I am." Yeah. So just to give you one example, and we probably close after that. Yeah. And Jonah, you remember Jonah who mm-hmm. runs. From God because he doesn't want to to go to the Ninevites who are this really corrupt, violent, uh, probably the most violent people group in the ancient world, the Assyrians. Yeah, uh, known for tearing people limb from limb, skinning people alive, you know, oh impaling people on stakes, and you know, yeah, terrible a whole bunch stuff. Of terrible stuff. Yeah, uh, gr- gratuitous violence. He doesn't want to go to them not because he's scared of them. He doesn't want to go because because he doesn't want to repent. Yeah. But he finally does after he has that you know whole incident with the fish, yeah. <laughs> and he and he goes to them and he, and they do repent mm-hmm. and he gets ticked off at God <laughs> and when he gets ticked off at God he says is this not what I what I what I said when I was when I fled to Tarshish uh, that you are a God compassionate gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he quotes from Exodus thirty four wow well how does he know that well he knows it from Exodus thirty four mm-hmm. but he's ticked off. Because God is showing his grace and compassion to this group that shouldn't have it, yeah. that doesn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. So if you ever want a picture of God's grace in the Old Testament, look at the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. Wow. And they respond with sackcloth and ashes after just one sermon on the part of Jonah. In fact, just one prophecy, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they respond. And, and it shows that God can be gracious even to those who are what we would deem to be beyond the grace of God. Wow. Now that is beautiful. If you need any encouragement today, if you, even if you feel like you're beyond the grace of God, um, that's for you right there. I'd love to preach a sermon like that. One good sermon and everybody repents, right? <laughs> that's what I'm praying for. Um, well, look, let's go and close out. Um, this is just a fun question. Uh, Tell me, what are you listening to, what are you reading, and what are you watching? Okay. So uh, I, have, I have made a commitment. Um, th- I don't listen to a lot. I'll okay. say that. <laughs> yeah. Not a big music person. Here, here I'm – oh, music. Uh, let's see. I, I love um, – my favorite musician. I'm a, I'm a folk musician mm-hmm. type of guy. I yeah. like uh, Pierce Pettis. He's not overtly Christian, but he has a lot of Christian themes in his in his music, and I just mm-hmm. like the acoustic folk, yeah, uh, deep thinking type of of, of music. Uh, so, and he's he's pretty old, but uh, if you get a chance, go onto YouTube and look him up. You'll okay. be blessed. Uh, what I'm reading, uh, I am I made a commitment this summer to read through some of the the classics. 
Oh, good. So I'm reading through Moby Dick right now. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to make it through some of these that I read when I was a teenager, and yeah. I, you know, I don't really remember a whole lot, but I can read them with fresh eyes now. You were forced to read it then, probably, yeah. and yeah. through school and whatnot. Exactly. You just and want then, to. And what was the last one? Um, what are you watching? What am I watching? I watch a lot of Braves. <laughs> Do you? Okay. So you're watching live sports. You're not a Netflix or Hulu no, guy. I, I don't. I don't. With three boys, you don't have a chance yeah, to watch a lot of TV. So too difficult. How are the Braves doing? I'm not uh, huge into baseball. Uh, all right. Yeah, they're doing okay. Yeah, they're, they're not they're like okay. miserable like they were a few yeah, years ago, right? No. no they're, okay. They're, they're they're close. That's good. That's <laughs> at least they're not there. I'm a Bulls fan, and okay. we're pretty horrendous too. We're like. Third worst in the league, or something like that. So yeah. we both got it rough. They'll make a comeback. It's yeah, good. Yeah. The '90s are coming back for both of us <laughs> at some point. Exactly. That's hilarious. Well, look, thank you so much for um, joining well, me today for and for being on the podcast. I think this has been a wonderful discussion, and uh, it's helped me a lot. And I know it's going to help our listeners. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to the Let's Talk About God podcast. Um, as always, if you haven't, go ahead and give us a rating. Go ahead and subscribe so that you can stay up to date on all of our episode releases. Um, And if you would, share this podcast. Share it with somebody who needs it because I guarantee you it's going to help them. um, It's going to edify them, and we're believing that they're going to be blessed by it. All right, well, we will see you on the next episode. Thanks.